0: Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, welcome to New Vintage. If this is your first time here or first time back live in a while, it is so good to have you here. We're going to be in Genesis 39 today. So if you have your Bibles, Bible apps, which you should, come armed and ready for battle. Uh, if you come to New Vintage, we're, uh, uh, we love the Word of God here uh, at NBC. That's where we're going to be. We're in a series on Joseph. And as you're flipping over there, I want to do something kind of kind of different this morning we have the global leadership summit coming up here at the end of august or beginning of august actually um and and that is honestly i've been going for 15 20 years to that event it's an incredible event it's going to be here at the ritz and uh and and the tickets ain't cheap so what we want to be able to do is to give away a couple of those to people who are serving among us uh in unique and special ways and have been a part of what god is doing here as a way of saying thank you, but also as a way of continuing to invest in their leadership uh, here among us and, and wherever they may go. So I want to call two very special people up to the stage just quickly so you can meet them. Uh, over here, we've got Jim Coyle, senior, next to little Jimmy, his boy. Come on up, Jim. <laughs> Eva Keener, come on up. And I want to say, uh, Jim, I'll do him first since he, as he's walking up. Jim, Jim and Eva both are in the middle of almost everything that goes on here at NBC, they really are. Super servants. Uh, you'll, you'll see them particularly outside there in the lobby area. Uh, but Jim and I, we, we met uh, coaching softball together. Uh, not that, I guess it was a long time ago. We we're just, uh, but I don't feel any older. Yes, I do. But uh, we're, we're both getting older, and it's such a joy to be able to serve with this guy. Okay, so he's involved with the men's ministry, uh, in the lobby, hospitality. I've seen him doing security. I've seen him doing almost anything you can imagine being done in the life of a church. Uh, Jim, has, is doing the same thing, uh, and so he's just out there doing things and, and, and serving the kingdom, okay? So we want to acknowledge him, and then Miss Eva, come on over here real quick. Uh, let me flip you two real quick. Now, Eva and Brandon, Alejandro, Isabella, dude, yes. Amen. I don't even know what to say, okay? <laughs> this, this family uh, is, is, they're steroidal in their servanthood, okay? Yes. They serve all the time, all over, I think right now Alejandro's helping on tech. You were out in the lobby, saw so you doing your normal thing there. You've served in women's ministry before Brandon's doing security out front. I mean, this family just serves and serves and serves and they do it with a great attitude. Uh, so uh, particularly today, we wanted to say thank you to Eva for everything she's contributed here at NBC over the years and also to say to Jim and to Eva, we love you. We're so thankful that God brought you our way and for everything that you do around here, we wanna say thanks and consider this a down payment on the future of us saying, we acknowledge that God is working mightily in your lives. So let's give these two a hand. Um, Thank you. Well, we can hug now, right? <laughs> That's right. All right. Here we go. All right. Thank those folks. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in a series uh, on Joseph called The Dreamer. Now, you may notice the logo is a little different. Uh, the guy that seems to be at the middle has an apple over his face. And so people have gone, what's the deal with the apple? Now, if you're an art person, you may know where the apple symbolism comes from. It comes from a painting called Son of Man by René Magritte, Belgian surrealist painter. This is the painting that it comes from. Now, some of you are going, oh, yeah, I've seen that painting around. Uh, It is kind of viewed as surrealism par excellence. This is uh, the kind of painting that, uh, you, you know, sells for tens of millions of dollars, uh, and you go, why? It's a dude with an apple over his face, right? For the, for the, for the, for the uh, barbarians among us uh, that would say that kind of a thing. The more you stare at it, and I, what I've realized about this painting, because I've stared at it a lot, is that um, the point of the painting really comes to bear on you're trying to pick it apart. So, Magritte's take was putting an apple, and by the way, this is a self-portrait. So that's Magritte himself in the picture. He paints himself, puts an apple over the face. And he says, what ends up happening is people focus on the apple. And yet, there's somebody behind that. So he reveals a little bit of the face, but not enough that you can make out who it is. But even as you're trying to go, okay, who's this guy? You're missing all sorts of other things going on in the painting. For instance, I just, a couple of weeks ago, realized, if you look at his left arm, it's bent backwards, which I did not notice. I've stared at this painting, I don't know how many times, never noticed it. Why? Because I'm looking at the apple. Uh, you don't really n- notice the, the scape behind him, the retaining wall, kind of down at its waist, the, the sky, the ocean, the different things that are going on. So here's what Magritte said about his own painting. Now, very rarely are artists really going to come out and tell you this kind of thing. Uh, he was gracious in a particular interview, and he said this. He goes, at least it hides the face partly well, so you have the apparent face, the apple, hiding the visible but hidden... The face of the person. It's something that happens constantly. Everything we see hides another thing. We always want to see what is hidden by what we see. There's an interest in that which is hidden, in which the visible does not show us. This interest can take the form of a quite intense feeling, a sort of conflict, one might say, between the visible that is hidden and the visible that is present. Now, for you engineers, you're going, whatever. Here's what he's saying. Okay, picture it. uh, This is a a little bit of an imprecise illustration, but it's like he's saying that what you see is like a Russian nesting doll. There's always something behind whatever it is that you're seeing. So when I go up and meet you in the lobby, I might go, Oh, here's, you know, so and so. And right then I'm starting to read you. I'm starting to kind of see who I think you are. Are they smiling? Are they nice? Do they look like they're a jerk? Uh, Do they, you know, am I scaring them? Uh, who, Who are they? And you might start telling me whoever you want me to think you are, okay? And I might do the same if I decide that you're not safe to open up to. And so as a result, we just got stuff, and we put up this kind of cultural camouflage up in front to make you think that we are this. But if you go behind that, right, there's always a person behind that And there's something behind that and something behind that. So when you look at your life, what you're going to see, okay, for the most part is whatever's right in front of you. So if you walked in here today, there's something going on in your life, odds are, that is dominating your thoughts. It's what you see. It's the apple, if you will. So in the case of Joseph, in the graphic, the idea behind it is, that when people look at Joseph, he is this dreamer, right? But all they see is a Hebrew slave boy. That's the apple, right? But there he is behind it, believing firmly in what God is trying to do in his life. And then Joseph becomes a, a prototype of what we're supposed to become. All right, so there you go. There's our art clinic for the morning. Uh, but that's what goes into your average sermon series graphic here at NBC. All right, so we, we, we did that. So if you want to assemble, take one of your selfies this week and put an apple over the face. And just put it out there and see what happens. See what people do. What's the matter with you? Why is there an apple over your face, right? And uh, say, oh, it's still me. I want you to get to know the me behind the apple. So today, your life, whatever's going on, I want to go behind the apple. And we're going to use Joseph as the case test. We're going to go, all right, what's really happening in the life of Joseph? He is one of the great heroes of the Bible. He's not a, a, a person who, who uh, you know, just... Uh, has a little dirt under his fingernails like most of the biblical heroes do. He and Joshua, they they tend to be pretty good people. And that becomes especially important today. Because our good man Joseph, when we last saw him, had just been sold into slavery by his brothers. You may remember, he was favored son. Son of Jacob's old age. He liked him because, hey, giving birth to Joseph helps me realize I still got it. Uh, Then he also liked him because he was Rachel's son, his favorite wife. So Jacob had kind of enjoyed being mama's boy back in his own childhood, and he felt this need to, to kind of uh, show Joseph that particular kind of, of, uh, of love, so he gives him this multicolored coat. We talked about last week how the size of it would suggest it's a way of saying, you don't have to work like your brothers. You're the favorite, so you can stay in the house. Well, one day, he's in the house, and his dad says, hey, why don't you go out and check out on your brothers who are out there in the desert working in the heat? Terrible idea. They sent him out there. He'd already told his brothers that he'd had these dreams that they were going to end up bowing down to him someday, which were not false. They were just, he was just calling it like he saw it. And indeed, that will come to pass in due time. But he never stopped believing that what God had started doing in his life was going to be finished and completed. His brothers see him. They go, here comes the dreamer. They take his coat, they throw him in a pit, and then they eat. (laughs) They sit down and have lunch right by the pit, probably while Joseph's yelling outside the pit for help. There's no water in the pit, it says. And they eventually come and say, you know what, we get some good money for this little dude. So they sell him 20 shekels of silver, basic slave uh, amount. You know, if you go down to uh, like, uh, you know, someplace where slaves are being traded, that was about the average amount. They sell him off to Midianite slave traders. The Midianites then, and this is where we're going to pick up today, go to Egypt, and they sell him into the house of a man by the name of Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard, the head of the military of Egypt. Now, this is during a time most people would call Egypt's 12th dynasty. Uh, There are eight pharaohs during the life of Joseph, so they're dropping like flies, whatever. Joseph outlives almost all of them. And this particular pharaoh, this is at the peak of Egypt's power. So this is not a deal where um, he's the captain of the guard of, you know, uh, I don't know, Senegal or something. I mean, this is like the world superpower, the most military, the most soldiers, uh, the most to manage. So Potiphar's a big deal, all right? So he is brought in, and here's what the text says. Uh, Genesis 39, verses 2 to 4. It says, "'The Lord was with Joseph.' Now, if you're underlining things, take that phrase and underline that. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all he had. So it says it, then it'll go on and say that Potiphar's house prospered because the Lord was with Joseph. Potiphar sees it. Okay, this guy's got something. So I'm going to put him up in the house, and maybe things will go well with me too. And that's exactly what happens. So... Everything's going well now. now. Now, let's just rewind the tape. So, Joseph experiences a ton of trauma and tragedy in early childhood, right? You've got the death of his mom. You've got uh, the mass murder of revenge of, his, of, of the rape of his sister, Dinah. You have uh, the reconciliation with Uncle Esau. I guess that's a good, I, good thing. You've got some of these other deals going on Laban chasing him down. There's all these little dramas that happen. Um, His dad ends up wrestling with God and getting his hip thrown out of joint, walks maybe with a limp going forward. Scholars are divided on that. As you kind of go through, you're just going, this guy's gone through all of this. His brothers sold him. So he becomes dad's favorite trauma, favorite son. Brothers sell him into slavery. Now he's running Potiphar's house. He's looking pretty good for Joe. Hey, chalk one up for hope. Maybe this is what God was talking about. Big shot Joseph. Not only that, but he has the affection of the man who controls the largest military force on the globe at the time. Well, there's a problem, though. Potiphar's wife is very fond of Joseph. She likes what she sees. So she goes to Joseph and propositions him. Not once, not twice, every day. Here's what the text says. Uh, thirty-nine, Genesis 39, second half of verse 6 through verse 10. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Huh. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused, and he said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything he has in my charge. He, he is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. All right? And then one day things get out of hand. She's kind of tired of being told no. Everybody's gone. It's just her and Joseph. Nobody can see. No accountability. And she grabs him, grabs him by the coat. Joseph books it, leaving his coat behind. So there she is, once again, turned down with Joseph's coat in her hand. She then screams. Goes to the servants and says, you're not going to believe this. He attacked me. That's the problem. He attacked me. After my husband put him in here in charge over all his house, look what he did. He came and he made a pass at me. And so I was able to grab his jacket. And then you heard me scream, right? You heard me scream. That's because Joseph attacked me. All right, so then the servants... Go ahead, and she keeps his coat, the text says, next to her. She doesn't give it to them as evidence. She keeps it. When Potiphar gets home, I don't know she called him pot for short, hopefully not, but pot, honey, schnookums, you're not going to believe what happened today. You know that, that Hebrew slave that you put over your house? You're not going to believe what he did. I was just here minding my own business. I was here minding my own business, and you know That's eyelashes, that I would never be unfaithful to you. Never. But you know Joseph. Potiphar's probably like, yeah, I do. That doesn't sound like Joseph. But he did this. He came in when nobody was around. He attacked me. He was trying to lie with me. And then, guess what? Your servants, they heard me scream. I screamed. And I grabbed his jacket to fight him off. And then he dished his jacket and he took off. All of this is your fault. So, he takes Joseph and has him thrown into what's called the king's prison. And there Joseph will sit for years. So, let's review. Traumatized child, favored son, sold into slavery, over Potiphar's house, in jail for something he didn't do. All right, let's uh, boil this down a bit, shall we? Keep in mind, at no point has Joseph done wrong in this whole line. So if you're here and you think that there is a direct correlation between doing right or wrong and whatever's going on in your life, that's not always the case. I think it's fair to say that there's a jet stream in, in Scripture that would suggest that your life goes better if you're walking with God. There's no question, and I'm actually going to talk about that right now. But it's not like, okay, it's not a mathematical equation. If I do this, then God does that. And if this happens to me, then that must mean that I did something wrong. Or if something's going wrong in your life, it's because you don't have enough faith, or it's because of whatever, right? That's the sin of Job's friends. They, They look at Job, and they go, Job, just confess. You must have done something wrong for all this bad stuff to happen to you. Job's like, I'm innocent. And they keep going, no, no, no. See, even that, Job, nobody's perfect, right? I mean, just say it, whatever it is. I mean, look hey, everybody screws up sometimes, it's fine. Just come out with it. Maybe God will relent. Job's like, I didn't do anything wrong. It's the sin of Job's friends. It's the sin of others in the New Testament. When a handicapped man is there, and they go, who sinned, this man or his father? Jesus goes, nobody sinned. Why did somebody have to have sinned for this to happen? Right? In this case, what you've got is a Up and down, up and down, up and down. And and in this case, this down is for doing something that honor to God. This is about suffering for doing the right thing. It's not random suffering happening to a good person. This is about something actually going south on you in a profound way, something that will land you in prison for years for doing the right thing not for doing the wrong thing, the right thing. So we're going to start uh, with a few things that are here in the text. And again, let's get behind the apple because there are a few things that lie on the surface here, but that can lead us astray, all right? For instance, I was raised to think that this story was about resisting temptation. Uh, if, if, if a woman grabs hold of your jacket, bolt. Okay, that's not what this is about. Okay, we're going we're gonna to get there in a second. Let's start here. God's presence matters more than our circumstances. My wife and I moved this week. Um, Yeah, I know, it's a a really, especially in the summer, we always end up moving in the summer whenever we move. It's always hot, it's always a mess, and there's a process that you go through when you move, whether you're moving yourself or whether you're paying movers or you're doing a combo like we did. One of the first things that happens is you decide you're going to try and get rid of as much stuff as you can. You turn your life into a garage sale to help fund the move and because it's like, I don't want to have to move all this junk. So what can I sell that's not, you know, one of my kids or something? Can I sell anything? We were were hawking everything we we could uh, to be able to get rid of it, right? But that then creates a disagreement about what should stay and what should go, right? So the husband looks and sees his elk head in the trash can. He goes, you can't throw that away. Oh, huh, it's ugly. Nobody wants to look at that. Thing. Are you kidding me? That, that's a 12-point elk. I can't do without that. That's one of my big trophies. It's going. No, man, I can't go. Meanwhile, over here, uh, she goes over to this trash can and sees the little clay snowman that the kid made in second grade. You. You. What kind of a man throws away his child's clay you know, snowman that only has like one ball left with, with a toothpick sticking out of it because the top already fell off 10 years ago. You can't get rid of that. You can't get rid of that. If you're a father, you can't get rid of that. We just had Father's Day. We even celebrated you. What's your problem, right? And then over here, he's like, you can't get rid of the elkhead, so then you're getting in this conflict, right, about what, so first is we get rid of everything we can, and then it's, okay, what stuff, there's some stuff that should stay that somebody wants to get rid of, and then on the flip side, there's stuff that people want to keep that probably should be gotten rid of. And then there's this stuff that you forgot you had, right? You're like, man, I forgot all about that. There's my drill. haven't seen it in 10 years. You know, there's uh, my old baseball cards. had no idea they were out there, right? You get the stuff you forgot you had, and then you have the stuff that you're going to forget about once you've landed at your new spot. You're going to find boxes in your garage for a year, two years. We had boxes we hadn't opened since we moved into the last house that were just sitting in the garage. And it's great because now it's like Christmas. It's like you get to open something new every day for, for a year. So what is it? What is the stuff when you're going from here to there, wherever you're at, that you can't get rid of? I'm going to say the only thing, the only thing biblically that falls into that category is God's presence. Now some of you are going to go, my family, your family is a gift of God and not God himself. And there are people that through tragedy or broken relationships or whatever have to figure out how they're going to live without their family. It can be done. It's painful, but it can be done. But the phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, as you follow his life, that's the thread. That's what gives him the dream. That's what gives him confidence, and then from there, it's what helps him survive being sold into slavery. That's what helps him get to rise up in Potiphar's house, and it's what's with him when he's in jail. The presence of God, okay? It's it's God himself. It's his presence. Okay, wherever you go, that is the thing behind the thing. Whatever victories you have in your life, that's the thing behind the thing. Okay? If you have God's presence, his blessing, it will be fine. It may not feel fine at the moment. But what I find admirable about Joseph is that if I were in his shoes, and maybe maybe he did this, it's just not in the the text anywhere, I would have bellyached night and day until the guards wanted to kill me themselves. I would have sat there and gone, this isn't right. Oh, oh, the Lord was with Joseph. Well, where am I now? Where am I now? I might have gone Job. Who, who does a great job for the first several chapters of Job, just kind of, you know, as his whole life is wiped out, you know what? Naked, I came into this world naked, I will depart. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Though he slay me, yet will I praise him. But then eventually there's a crack, and he starts to kind of go, wait a minute here. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe God's just a big bully in the sky. Maybe, 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 maybe my friends are right. Not that I sinned, but maybe they're right about who God might be. And all of this stuff starts to come. So behind the apple of this story is this dude is in prison, riding away now, probably with very little hope of ever getting out because he did the right thing, because he honored God. He looked at Potiphar's wife, who the odds are, we don't know for sure, that she was probably, what is he called? A lovely in appearance and stature. Okay, if she's Potiphar's wife, she probably fits that description as well. Yeah. But what's interesting We'll talk about this in a second. Is There's no evidence that he was tempted. None. I know that's what we say because I think we would have been tempted, and we feel tempted by somebody throwing people throwing themselves at us. So we project that onto the story. But this doesn't reflect him being tempted in any way, shape, or form. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But I want you to understand the Lord being with Joseph, that's the constant that runs all the way through the story. Wherever you go, that's the thing behind the thing. If you have God with you, your trials, your tribulations, okay, all of that is but an apple over the face. There is more to the story than that. See, right now, he can't see that that, just like him being sold into slavery, was a means through which God put him over Potiphar's house, he can't yet see that this particular trial is going to lead to him being head of Pharaoh himself's house. So, going back to last week when we talked about people who turn off movies in the middle because they're boring, they're depressing, and they never finish the story. You turn this thing off right here, boom, oh, Joseph. Well, that's how God treats people, you know. He just takes what he can get from you and then just throws you in the jail cell and forgets all about you. That's how, if you hit pause or off right there, as you're binge watching this story, okay, it ruins it. Now, knowing the end of the story, you can see how what Joseph says at the end, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good, how that comes to pass when you watch it. But Scripture is going to emphasize throughout Joseph's life that the Lord is with him. And it also mentions that almost anybody who encounters Joseph realizes it too, just like Potiphar did. Potiphar sees God is with this guy. Maybe we should strive to be those kind of people that not only embrace and pursue the presence of God, but bear that resemblance so strongly that the people around us can see that the Lord is indeed with us. We laud God for His unconditional love for people, rightfully so. But we feel no obligation to love Him in a similar fashion. We laud God for loving us regardless of the things that we've done, being willing to forgive us, being willing to, to, to give us the blood of his son to cover things. God loves me unconditionally. And then we love God conditionally. Yeah. It, it, is God, you know, hey, that's great until something goes sideways, till I lose a job, till, uh, my my marriage breaks up or whatever. Now God's not good anymore. What's beautiful about the life of Joseph is Joseph loves God unconditionally. Not only is the Lord with Joseph, Joseph is with God. And no matter where he goes, that's the dominant theme of the life of Joseph. I mean, look, let me ask you this. What would it take to get you to walk away from God? Could I pay you something? I had a million dollars, would you do it? How much pain would you need to be in to give it up? Uh, Would it take Sunday falling on the 4th of July? (laughs) What would it take? Uh, Would it take the right person throwing themselves at you? Uh, Would it take, you know, uh, some tragedy going on for you to walk away? See, when you look at heroes of faith in Scripture, what makes them heroes is not that everything in their life goes well, and it's not that they do everything perfectly. Moses and David are complete train wrecks. Okay, they really are. And, and, and they do some noble, awesome things, but boy, they got some dirt under the fingernails, to put it mildly. And their attitudes, their ups and downs, are very different than you see in Joseph. Let me give you one little way to help engender this in your life. When you talk about your faith... Don't talk about it like you talk about your job. I've tried to when I think about it and when I talk about it. You know, I'm talking about one of those jobs where you're sitting there, you know, uh, with your friends. I don't know. Maybe you've even had a couple drinks, and you're sitting there and they go, "Tell me about what's going on." Where, Oh, you know, I hate it. I, just, you know, but I got to do it. And uh, you know, I do it because the retirement plan's good. You know, we got great benefits. Um, right? That way of talking about your job. I do it for the benefits. Here's why I do it. There's one why in the Christian life. And it's God himself. Right? It's what he's done for us in Christ. So when we talk about it, we shouldn't talk about it as the job we really don't want to do, but we're doing it because we have to or because of the, the perks. Talk about it like the greatest adventure you're ever going to be on in your life. Because God can take you places you could never go without him. Okay. What brings the presence of God? Um, blessability. Okay? Blessability. I've, I've used this phrase with you guys before, stay blessable. Um, when Joshua and the people are going to cross the Jordan River and take Canaan eventually, Joshua pulls everybody together and he says, hey, today, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, God is going to do great and mighty works among you. Why does he say that? I mean, does it really make a difference if God's going to do great and mighty works among them? That's how people who are ready for God to bless live. I'm going to live in a consecrated way because I believe that God is going to do great and mighty things among us. And I don't want him to look down like he would eventually. So remember, in the story of Joshua, they go on, they take Canaan. And the first battle out, they get their tail whooped right after that by a little, little tribe. And the reason was somebody in the camp had sinned. They, had, they were no longer at a point where God could push them forward as a, as a military power and continue uh, to do that, right? Now, uh, keep in mind that, that in the story of Joshua, the reason they were in the wilderness to begin with is because they were disobedient in the wilderness. Now, this doesn't mean, you heard me just say, I hope, that that is not a straight line. It doesn't mean that if something goes wrong, you automatically did something. That's one of the things Joseph teaches us. But one of the reasons God is trying to get Joseph from where he gave him the initial dream to being over Pharaoh's house is because of his broader plan to, re- to help keep Israel fed during a famine. All right. So, as all of this is going on, if Joseph decides to give in to Potiphar's wife, if he decides to do whatever, it would make it much harder for God to continue to bless him. Could he have done it anyways? Yes. Are we all beneficiaries of unmerited favor? Yes. But it's beyond question that when you read the text, the fool and the one whose life tends to head in a downward direction is a person who sins against God on an ongoing basis. Because it makes, God, it makes them harder to bless So many times uh, we wonder why God may seem to say no to us. When that happens, the first place to look isn't at what God did not do. It's rather to look at maybe what we didn't do or what we could have done differently. We are owed nothing. We're owed nothing by God. We owe God everything who has given us everything. God loves to give good gifts to his children. He loves to give, but he won't continue to empower things that are toxic to our faith or to our life. Sometimes the best gift God can give us is a righteous and holy no. If we want to hear yes, our requests should be made with clean hands and a pure heart. And so when you're going to do it, make those requests, sanctify yourselves and God, as God prepares to do great and mighty works among you. Number two, when it comes to temptation, uh, your best defense is a good offense. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, well, now again, the traditional interpretation here is if uh, somebody throws themselves at you, flee, like Joseph. Okay, I want to suggest to you again that, that nothing in the text says he was tempted whatsoever. That's actually the point of the text. It actually seems the opposite might be the case. I'm amazed by his lack of tem- apparent lack of, of temptation in this story. It says that she goes after him day after day. So he tells her no every single day. Early case of sexual harassment. All right? Uh, 4,000 years old. (laughs) All right? Um, Complete lack of temptation. She goes after him day after day. But look again at what he says. This is Genesis 39, 8 to 9. Joseph refused. Look, he told her. My master trusts me with everything in his entire household, No one here has more authority than I do. He's held back nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How can I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. Okay, so it's his sense of loyalty to Potiphar for his grace toward him and a deep sense of reverence for God. All right? He has a sense of who he is, what he's about, and what he actually cares about in this life, and that is what protects him from whatever temptation might have found him. Now, the higher up you go, okay, in the faith, you know, as as somebody said, new levels bring new devils. You have a bigger target on your back. Satan will get more sophisticated in how he comes at you, but you will be able to handle it if what's inside you is strong. So one of the reasons for you to continue to grow your faith is to grow a spiritual immune system to sin. Okay? That doesn't mean, by the way, that as you, get, as you continue to grow in your faith that you won't sense temptation, you won't be tempted. It just means that as those, you know, those bigger dragons kind of come your way, you're going to be equipped to handle those things differently. We need to prepare for that eventuality with a rock-solid growing reverence for God because our willpower is completely insufficient. Amen. Okay? Most of us can't even turn down cookies. Okay, how in the world are we going to turn down adultery over a lifetime if we lack the self-discipline to, 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 to say no to you know, ice cream or something at night? Our willpower is one of the weakest things we have. The power of God inside you is different. That's a whole other level. That's that's the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world, right? That's the power by which we thrive. You see it here in Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And next week, in next week's text, Pharaoh is going to go this far. He's going to say about Joseph, he's going to go, I see in this man the Spirit of God. Woo. That's how I want to be. I, I, want, I want Satan to almost go, you know what? Don't mess with that dude because every time we get a whooping from him, every time. That doesn't mean he's going to stop. But boy, I, I don't want to be the one who's always like walking on, on eggshells. I don't know. Don't be. You know we don't want you to be tempted don't be tempted now it's always wise to flee temptation that's there right in the bible right you don't hang around with it you don't play with it you don't you don't you don't dabble with it proverbs says you know look can you clutch a fire to your chest and not get burned That's right. Amen. you know so, so you don't want to get burned right but that's different there's a way to walk where you're scared of sin all the time and there's another way to walk which is with courage and boldness knowing that the lord is with me I'm with him, and so whatever's going on, okay, whatever's going on, whether I'm in the palace, the pit, or the prison, that's going to continue to, to, we're going to continue to do this thing together, and that's where the boldness comes from. Number three, suffering for good, okay, leads to victory for good, okay? In fact, I'll go as far as to say suffering is actually a part of doing what's right in a world hell-bent on doing wrong. Okay. If, we, if we live in a world that is full of things that are sinful and wrong, there's a lot of good in the world too, but there's a lot that's wretched and wrong in this world. So if that's going that way and you're swimming the other way, expect conflict. What Joseph experiences here is not different than many Christians experience in all sorts of parts of the world where they end up in jail for doing what God told them to do, gathering for worship. Preaching X or Y from the pulpit. We are just so, frankly, spoiled here in the United States uh, at me being able to do this without fear of somebody coming at me right now, right? Uh, or throwing me in jail after this is done that, that we haven't really had to experience this much, so it's not very familiar. But real persecution for doing good. Um, here's what for what Peter says, the apostle, in 1 Peter 20, 20, uh, 2, 20-23. to 23. He goes, what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What? I don't want that calling. That's the calling. To this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps, he committed no sin; neither was deceit, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was, he, he says, he did nothing wrong. He suffered for it, and instead of, of pushing back or, or returning evil for evil, instead he entrusted himself to God. That's what Joseph does. That's what we're supposed to do. We follow the imitation of Christ. That's what we're doing. We're imitating Jesus, okay? And so we need to remember that even as we go through those things, if you're suffering for doing good, we were promised, in this world you will have trouble. We follow a crucified Savior who was crucified sinless. Not because he did anything wrong. Because people around him were jealous. They felt threatened by him. So why do we think that we should sashay through this life, uh, you know, like like it's Palm Sunday every day in our honor, when every example and every signpost in Scripture points the other way? And let me encourage you again. So if you're in the pit or, or the prison or something like that right now for doing good, very important there. He says, what good is it if if you get punished for being sinful and you endure? Yippee. You got what you deserve, basically. Hooray for you. But if you do good and you suffer for it. Now, now you're right there in the center of the gospel. Right? Now now you're really doing something Christ-like. There's an old story um, about an old man who's lived in a small village. I've told uh, NBC this story before, but I love it. It reminds me of, of uh, why we don't turn off the, the TV show right in the middle. Uh, an old man, poorest man in the village, but he owned the most beautiful white stallion. It was the envy of everybody. One day the king of the village came to him and offered him a small fortune for it. After a terribly harsh winter, during which the old man and his family nearly starved, all the townspeople come to him and they say, Are you out of your mind? Your family is starving to death. Sell the king the horse. You never have to work another day in your life. Old man, you can hardly afford to feed your family. Sell the stallion, you'll be rich. If not, you're a fool. He said, It is too early to tell. A few months later, he woke up, the old man did, and his stallion had run away. Townspeople come to him and they say, See, if you'd sold the king your horse, you'd be rich. Now you have nothing. You're a fool. It's too early to tell, he said. (laughs) Two weeks later, the white stallion returned, and along it brought three other white stallions with it. Old man, the townspeople said, We are the fools. Now you can sell the stallion to the king and you'll still have three stallions left. You are smart. It's too early to tell, he said. The following week, The old man's son, his only son, was breaking in one of the stallions and he was thrown off, crushing both of his legs. Here come the townspeople again. They pay a visit to the old man and they said, Old man, if you just sold the stallion to the king, you'd be rich and your son wouldn't be crippled. You're a fool. It's too early to tell, the old man said. Well, the next month, war broke out in the neighboring village. All of the young men in the village were sent into the battle, all of them were killed except his son, because he was injured and couldn't go into battle. Townspeople came, and they cried to the old man, we've lost our sons. You're the only one who hasn't. If you'd sold your stallion to the king, your son, too, would be dead. You are so smart. It's too early to tell, the old man said. (laughs) And this story just kind of keeps going, right? But I hope you get the point, right? That often today, everybody's like, oh, that was so smart. That was so good. That was so brilliant. Oh, and you pat yourself on the back, or I pat myself on the back, or you look at Joseph sitting in a prison cell for doing the right thing. Joseph, you picked the losing team. It's too early to tell, <laughs> right? right. That, that's the story of Joseph. It's too early to tell. Joseph, look, you were the favorite son, and all that did was get you sold into slavery by your own brothers. How do you expect to be you know, this hot shot guy, if your own brothers can't stand you, it's too early to tell. Right. For many of us, that's the phrase we need to take with us this morning from this text. It's too early to tell. We need to give God the time, okay, the time to show up and to come through. Sisters and brothers, if Jesus is big enough to follow, he's big enough to trust. Genesis 39, 21 to 23. Here's where we'll head into next week. In the prison cell sits Joseph. Here's what the Bible says. But the Lord was with Joseph. And he showed him steadfast love. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Amen. To be continued next week. We're going to gather around the Lord's table right now in a meal we call communion. Uh, and, and we celebrate the crucifix. We do this every week at New Vintage. There's a little cracker. You should have gotten a bag with the elements in it when you came in. If you didn't and you'd like one, go ahead and raise your hand. We have ushers that are handling that, and we'll make sure you get one. Um, But when we do, we remember the death of Jesus, which is a great symbol of two, two things we talked about today. One is that not just the guilty suffer. Sometimes you suffer for doing good. There was no greater good ever done than for him to lay down his life for others. And then also, let's remember the poignancy of the fact that at the crucifixion, a lot of people thought the story was over, game, set, match. But the prophets of old and the scriptures were saying it's too early to tell. And three days later, everything changed. So my hope is that if you're here and you're hurting today, if you're not understanding what's going on around you, get behind the apple. See what's behind it and that is a God who is with you. Uh, If you're involved in something that would take away your blessability, it's a good time to repent. Sanctify yourself. Consecrate yourself. For tomorrow, God will do great and mighty works among you. So let's pray now uh, and thank God for his gift to us in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we love you. We are so thankful uh, for what you've done for us in Christ, that the story isn't over, Father for everybody in this room, and whether we're riding high right now or, Father, we're at the lowest we've ever been, knowing that you're with us, Father, help that to be enough for us. Help us to trust you, knowing that if if you're big enough to follow, you're big enough to trust. So this morning in the taking of communion, Father, we say we have faith that the story is not over, that you are with us, And that if it means suffering for doing good, Father, we're willing to do it as long as we are with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.